Alexis Dubief with the Precious Little Sleep Podcast. Everybody has a bucket list, those challenges you hope to achieve maybe someday in the future. I've actually done a couple of things on my bucket list. I've completed in five Spartan Beasts, and last summer I put out a book. There's still plenty of things on my bucket list I haven't done yet. Uh, For example, I'm not friends with Chrissy Teigen or John Oliver. Hey guys, call me. I'm here. I'm waiting. But a couple of months ago, I did get the opportunity to do another thing on my bucket list, which was to be interviewed on NPR. Jane Lindholm is a bonafide Vermont celebrity, and her show, Vermont Edition on VPR, is hugely popular around here. VPR, of course, being the NPR in Vermont. So you can imagine how thrilled I was when she invited me to be on her show to talk a little bit about Precious Little Sleep and the book and Baby Sleep and why it's all so challenging. Uh, She was also gracious enough to allow me to share the interview in its entirety here in this podcast. Um, So go ahead and give it a listen. I will tell you, I was flop sweating the entire time, like the bad kind where you can't move your arms because it's all wet in there. Yeah, that was happening. So go ahead and take a listen and let me know if you can tell. (laughs) All right, here, let's go. Hey there, Rick Singari of Vermont Edition. Just want you to know this podcast has been edited for brevity. Thanks for listening. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Jane Lindholm. My basic overall approach to parenting so far has been to, you know, muddle through by trying to do what works, work on instinct, and if it works, great. Until it doesn't, then figure something else out. One thing that often doesn't work for parents of very young children is sleeping, both for the babies and for the parents. But fear not. There are a million books, websites, blogs, and opinionated friends on Facebook there to help you out. I say that derisively, but sometimes you do need advice or help to get to a good place with a nighttime routine for your little darling, especially if your brain is not quite functioning because of sleep deprivation. Now, one place many parents, like a million or more, have turned to for help is the website, Facebook group, podcast, and now book, Precious Little Sleep. And the woman behind this resource is a Vermonter. Alexis Dubieff was at her own wit's end when she got started, and now she's being hailed as a savior by other struggling (laughs) parents. Of course, it wouldn't be the mommy wars without others accusing her of being cold-hearted when it comes to sleep training, but I guess that comes with the territory. Alexis, welcome to Vermont Edition. Thank you so much for having me. So what made you want to be one of these people who has the name and the sleep (laughs) training name and this following and a personal style? No, no, this is entirely accidental. I have have, um, stumbled upwards and landed here. There was no plan. This just happened. How? I I just started blogging because I was bored. I have a background in technology. Um, You know, being home with two small kids was not easy. And I didn't expect anyone to pay attention. And then people started paying attention. And then things steamrolled from there. But you had the miracle children who slept through the night from day one. I was a glorious parent (laughs) from the minute I gave birth uh, to to now, really. It's never... Wow, lucky you. <laughs> no wonder people follow you. No, actually, talk a little bit about when you when you first became a mom, and you know, 
I think a lot of parents aren't quite aware of how difficult it can be. And that that idea of just going on instinct really doesn't work no. for many, many parents. No, everything was terrible. And um, I, I had postpartum depression and anxiety, every nursing problem under the sun. My husband had blown out his knee and needed a series of four surgeries. We had just moved to Vermont. Uh, and it was winter, and my child basically nursed or cried. Like that's all we did. And our, you know, our beloved pediatrician would be like, "Well, you know, you have to put him down to sleep." And I was like, "What does that mean? Put him down to sleep? Like there's crying and nursing. I don't. There's right. no other state. <laughs> there's no such thing as somebody sleeping in a crib." Yeah, and I, I mean, I laugh about it now, but at the time, I was like rock solid, miserable forever. I mean, <laughs> like. And we would drive him around Williston for hours in the middle of the night because it was the only thing that would keep him from screaming. And, you know, in hindsight, I'm like, that was insane. What We were not safe to be driving at two to four for months because he would be screaming inconsolably and that would work. So, yeah, it was a bad time. And part of all of this came from the point where I was like, it shouldn't be like this. This shouldn't be so confusing and conflicting advice and, you know, things that just weren't clear and, yeah. But this was not the dark ages. This was not pre-written word. There were millions of books, you know, 10 years ago, too. I had all the books. I went to all the baby classes. I was on all the forums and Baby Center and, you know, I, I, I had it all. And, you know, so, you know, Dr. Sears is telling me that if he's crying, it's because I don't love him enough and we should co-sleep and nurse more. And that wasn't working. And then the other books are telling me I need a schedule and to put him down awake and he'll fall asleep, which never happened. And, you know, and, and I'm like, well, I, they're all disagreeing with each other. None of them are working anyway. Um, and, yeah, so we were just stuck. And uh, I thought this, this shouldn't be this hard. Millions of people are having babies. This should be something we can figure out. Okay, so tell me your approach. And, and we're going to skip way ahead now. And then we can talk about a little bit about how you've come to, um, to, to say, you know, I believe in these approaches. But, but what is the basic philosophy? So the basic philosophy is that newborns need a lot of soothing. They just do. And so you have to approach the first few months as, okay, how do we give them enough soothing so that they can successfully fall asleep and stay asleep? Because they need to sleep a ton. So having them awake for large stretches of the day is a bad outcome. Um, So that's really the focus, you know. And what are the soothing options that are safe and effective? And when I wrote the book, it forced me to check a lot of my assumptions and really look at the research to say, well, this is what I was told and this is what I sort of think is true, but what can I validate as being true? You know, so things like white noise and pacifiers and SWAT and these are all things that we really want to embrace um, for the first few months. Uh, but that as they get older, the, the essential issue and the stumbling block where so many people get hung up is falling asleep independently. And it is hard to do. Um, but when we don't teach our children how to fall asleep without assistance from us, direct assistance, rocking, nursing, bottles, cuddles, bouncing, then as they cycle through light sleep throughout the night, they can't fall back to sleep without us. And this locks us into patterns of behavior that manifest for years of sleeplessness for all involved. And we have to have that basic understanding, which I certainly didn't when mine were young, of how sleep works and why what we do at bedtime sets us on this path and what are our strategies available to us to establish independent sleep so they can fall back to sleep in the middle of the night. And it depends a little bit on when you're starting to try this, whether your baby is six months old Mm -hmm. or eight months old or a year old. But the idea in all cases is to establish a pattern of independent sleep so a baby or or a small child can fall asleep on her own Mm -hmm. and then when she wakes up through the night, get back to sleep. Yes. So 
one of the things that you advocate for is don't tie something like a bottle or nursing directly to the act of falling asleep. So how do you prevent that? So, yeah. So just some background. So there's things that I said, okay, here's what we can find from science. This is what science tells us. But there's plenty of questions science doesn't have the answers for currently because baby sleep is not a huge area of research. Okay, let's be honest. So you think it would be. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no. There's not. I mean, there are some. I don't mean to discount. Of course there is some. But the questions that people have about night parenting are often not the areas where the research is being funded. So then I had to go, okay, but I have experience now with thousands of families and babies. So what have I seen anecdotally? So the research says if you fall asleep in a certain way, that will be associated with sleep. So if I fall asleep on a bottle... Uh, then I'll wake up and need a bottle. So if I have a bottle, but I'm awake and then fall asleep, you should be good to go. But then experience with thousands of babies showed that, no, that also can cause problems. And that's where the connection came that anything you do to sleep or near sleep can be tightly integrated in your head with sleep, and thus you'll need it in the middle of the night. So that bottle where you're super drowsy and then actually go fall asleep in your own crib could still lead to problems. Right, because, you know, I, I certainly heard all the advice that you should put your baby to to bed, drowsy, but mm-hmm. awake. But, you know, if you're sort of popping that baby yes. off the nipple and yes. you can see the eyes fluttering and you shove them into the bed, that's, yeah. that's yeah, you're saying that there's still a sleep I, I, I use the phrase a limp piece of bacon, but <laughs> if they're a limp piece of bacon, then they're basically 80% asleep. Right. <laughs> We're talking with Alexis Dubieff, author of Precious Little Sleep. She now has a book out in addition to her website, blog, podcast, Facebook group. Now, Alexis, I know that you are um, bracing yourself now <laughs> as the calls um, maybe start to come in for uh, some parents who say you're all wrong, a hundred percent wrong, and you know you shouldn't even be here. Well, you know the evidence supports me. So, in terms of like academic and scientific evidence, I, I can say, look, the evidence supports me, but I don't like getting yelled at. So, yeah. Um, there's that. <laughs> One of the things that you told me when I said, oh, let's do this show is, you know, I, I don't know, in Vermont, there there doesn't seem to be as much of an appetite for the idea of successfully sleep training your child. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, this is the hippie for all things Mecca. And I, I'll admit, we had moved here and then had children right away. And, you know, uh, so I was I was basically told, like, the answer to all of my problems in the newborn phase, but really the first year of life, really, was, you know, baby wearing, co-sleeping and nursing. And we tried all of those things. And it didn't. It we were miserable. It literally it was crying or nursing, and you know, <laughs> you know. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, I I need to eat. Like I can't <laughs> like eat a sandwich. Um, I mean, I laugh, but it was a very dark time. So uh, yeah, so I do feel that that is part of the Vermont culture, and I'm not trying to disagree with those things. Those are wonderful things, and if they're working for you and you're happy with how everything is going, then great. That's awesome. But I also think it's fair to say that sleep is a essential biological need, and um, you know, a friend of mine always says, you know, parenting is not an event in the hardship Olympics, and there are no gold medals for suffering, and it's okay to say I'm a human being and I need to sleep more than two hours a night. Yeah, but you also hear people say, look, this doesn't last forever. Your child is not going to go off to college nursing or needing to sleep with you. So if it's a couple of years and you can sort of muddle through it, you know, you're just going to have to do that. But but you don't buy that. 
Well, again, if it's working for you, I'm not going to say that you need to change. If any time it's working for you, that's great. I, I will say, arguably and verifiably, human beings need at least six hours of uninterrupted sleep at night to function. So, if we were to give, you know, somebody who is in this state uh, an IQ test, a manual dexterity test, um, you know, they're going to suffer. Uh, we get sick, you know, fat. We have car accidents. We have depression. Like the the, the impacts of chronic sleep deprivation are well documented. So the idea that you're going to continue to be your best parenting self and be exhausted for years, um, I would argue is probably not working so great for you. And I would also say that it's also not necessary. So the idea that they're only young for a little while is true. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, you're going to ask your four-week-old to sleep 12 hours uninterrupted. But I think that we're letting things continue in this rough vein for many, many years because we don't want to do the hard work of change. And ultimately, that's what has to happen for us to all get to a healthy sleep place. And that's healthy for them, too. We got a note from Stacy who says, although my baby is seven now, the same principle applies as when he was a baby. Consistency, the same bedtime, the same pre-bedtime activities every day, even on school vacations and weekends. Alexis, is consistency important? So Stacy's right on the money. So when we have school-aged kids, there's often a tendency to have like late bedtimes on the weekends, early bedtimes on school nights. And, you know, the research suggests that when we have that fluctuating bedtime, uh, those kids tend to have, you know, slightly more behavioral problems and, you you know, temper tantrums and issues. So, and, and this is just boring sleep hygiene stuff. The same applies for adults. Going to bed at the same time every time is how your circadian rhythm regulates around consistency. So ideally, yeah, we just kind of stick to a plan. Michelle says, low stress routine is key. When I put my kids to bed when they were little, it was less than half an hour and they were all sleeping. PJ stories, teeth, snuggles, etc. Their dad would fight with them for over an hour and I'd still have to go in there and actually put them to bed after all of that. Have confidence and a plan. <laughs> They'll feed from that. Um, sounds like maybe babies can sense your fear. <laughs> They, they can sense weakness. Uh, they're like dogs. Um, yeah, I know. I think confidence and consistency is key. And and also, I, it sounds like her, her dad is probably not sticking to the plan all that well. So, yeah. Yeah, consistency. Evan says, the only way I could get our first son, Glenn, to sleep was to put him in an ergo wrap and take him for a Nordic ski every nap for the first winter or put him in an ergo wrap and play low fifth drones on my double bass with him between me and the bass when he would wake in the middle of the night. You know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. That is the most Vermont answer to anything. <laughs> we are taking your tips. Uh, you can post how you got your children to sleep, maybe help out some other parents um, on our Facebook page. So go to the Vermont Edition Facebook page. And if you have a question for Alexis Dubieff, our number is 800 639 Two two one one. Laura is calling in from Norwich. Hi, Laura. Hi. I was wondering. Um, so I have I have an older child that I had a really hard time with. Um, I was sleeping until she was about a year old, and I'm having a second one now in a few weeks. And I just need to get started off the right foot. I'm going to be nursing. I nursed the first one for a couple of years, and I'm trying to do the same. So I just need help in how to sleep train 
right away. Is that possible? Laura, <laughs> thanks for the advice. call and uh, congratulations on the upcoming birth of your new baby. So a couple of um, dips out in Laura's um, phone line, but it sounds like she plans to nurse maybe for a year or two. She's got a, a, an older child at home. She needs some advice on how to get started on the right foot and when you can start sleep training. So, you know, you're sleep training from the minute your child uh, is born because, um, you know, you're helping them fall asleep. And, you know, so the first few months, your goals are, you know, safe, obviously established, you know, successful nursing, if that's your goal. Um, And some great tools to consider would be uh, swaddling and white noise. And I know this is controversial in Vermont, but I'm even going to say the pacifier. And studies suggest that, you know, pacifier use is associated with successful nursing outcomes, does not lead to nipple confusion, and helps kids sleep better. And kids who fall asleep with a pacifier in their mouth are much less likely to have issues with SIDS. So so that's your your starter go-to right there. Um, you know, white noise should be the volume of a shower, about 55 decibels. And, um, and those things will help your child to fall asleep and stay asleep. Newborns can't stay awake very long. So probably every hour or so, you're going to want to try to help them fall asleep. And you can fully help them if nursing to sleep helps, if bouncing to sleep helps. You know, for the first few months, that's great. Do what works um, and don't worry about independent sleep and them falling asleep on their own. You know, I consider like three to six months a big pivot time. And that's the time where you're kind of coming out of that newborn phase. You know, we've sort of figured out nursing and newborn care and how to balance the preschooler and the baby, and which is a lot, by the way. I don't want to discount that. But that's a great time to then start to pivot towards, okay, I've been like bouncing them until they're fully asleep in my arms. What happens if I bounce until they're drowsy and then put them down and maybe pat their belly until they fall asleep? You know, what happens if I bounce for a few minutes and then put them in the crib and then jiggle the crib so they fall asleep in the crib? So so three to six months is really a great time to kind of experiment a little, you know, try some different things and try, you know, pick an approach you think might work and just try it for three days. Say, what if we just try this for three days, even if it's kind of rocky, you know, give it a real chance to succeed before we bail and say, oh, that'll never happen. That's such a hard time, though, for so many parents, because at least for um, for many working moms, that's also yes. the time that you're returning to work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe the early months are, are crazy and full of sleep deprivation and trying to figure things out. But at least in my experience, I was more exhausted once I went back to work. Of course. <laughs> of course. Going going back to work is really hard and it is exhausting. And there's a lot of, you know, uh, feelings and emotions wrapped up in it. But I would argue that this is the time where it's essential because what you don't need is to be a working parent of two who gets home at six o'clock, you know, is racing these kids to bed, has five minutes of alone time during the day before collapsing in a heap and then beginning the night process of waking up every two hours. So if anything, I don't know, girding your loins and trying to figure out how to make some changes during that three to six month period is going to save you a lot of months of just sheer exhaustion. Today we're talking with Alexis Dubieff about sleep training babies and their parents. She's just written a new book called Precious Little Sleep, the complete baby sleep guide for modern parents. And it's a companion to her website and podcast of the same name. Alexis lives in Essex and is in the studio with us today. Let's go to Stephanie calling in from Shelburne. Hi, Stephanie. Go right ahead. Thank you. I'm calling because I am the grandmother of a three-year-old. And she was exactly what you described, the baby who only nursed and only cried. Her mother was incredibly admirable, surviving all this. And frankly, it took, a, it took three of us to survive it. 
I now take care of her full-time while her parents work full-time. And things started to change around 18 months. She goes to sleep independently now and, and does great, except that she wakes up during the night and wants to go in with her parents, which is still exhausting for everyone. Do you have any advice for a three-year-old who's waking up at night? Uh, no, absolutely. And I just wanted to say kudos to you. What a great grandma um, being such a such a helper. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, sleep problems are not infant specific. And there's a lot of um, kind of great and funny and hard things happening with big kids because things that, you know, toddlers and preschoolers have that babies don't is mobility. <laughs> Right. They can get out of their bed at Freedom, three. yeah. Um, and, you know, I refer to the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test was a Stanford test where they put a marshmallow in front of a, like a three- or four-year-old kid and said, all right, you're going to sit here for a minute. If you eat the marshmallow, we'll give you a second marshmallow. Or no, sorry, if you don't eat it, you get a second marshmallow. If you if you eat it, then you're done. And, of course, all the kids eat the marshmallow. So, you know, one of the things we could take from this is that delayed gratification is not a strong suit of toddlers. Um, so if we look at a three-year-old getting up in the middle of the night, we go, why? are they getting up? So the number one reason is that they think they can only sleep with their mom or dad. So I wonder what the bedtime routine is. And I wonder if there's something happening where mom and dad cries, crawls into bed with them and stays until they're asleep or sits in a chair until they fall asleep, which is really common. Uh, toddler superpower is fighting bedtime. And so our response to that fighting tends to be like, oh, well, I'll sit here and watch you until you fall asleep. But then, again, back to independent sleep, they haven't fallen asleep on their own, so they wake up naturally in the night, as we do as mammals, and they look around, and you've gone missing. So what do they have to do is they have to go find you. Well, where are you? You're in your bed. So they come find you there, and they climb in, and nobody wants to fight the fight at 3 in the morning, and you end up with a toddler in your bed. And, you know, again, if that was working for you, that's fine, but many people find that having a a, a three-year-old elbows in their spleen all night is not optimum for sleep. So the issue here is, okay, are they falling asleep with you in their bed, in their chair? Are you cuddling until they're drowsy? Same as with the infants. It's the same issue. you know. And if so, that's our number one fix is we have to uh, stop, change our bedtime routine so that that's not happening. Also, they're three. We need to talk to them. And this is like a family meeting you have over lunch. And we say, Hey, honey, um, you know what? I'm just not getting good sleep when you climb into bed with me. I love you, but I just don't sleep all that way. And it's hard for me to feel tired and then still be a good mommy for you and have energy to play and go to the park and do the things that we love to do. So I think we need to make a change and, you know, start talking. And that works with your three-year-old? <laughs> well, you're establishing it. This is not a bedtime conversation. So, you know, and I, I like to think of it as boundaries and bait. And really, it's like, okay, what are the rules? What are our night rules? You know, do we have a nightlight on a timer? And the rule is we stay in bed when the light is on and the timer, go, you know, the timer goes off at six and the light turns off, then they're free to come out. Um, what if they have to use the bathroom? Do we have bedtime tickets? Well, if we give them two tickets at bedtime and you need to go to the bathroom, I'll come in and help you. Of course I will. But it's going to cost you a ticket, you know. Um, but we also have rewards associated with this, you know, um, if we went the ticket route. Any unused tickets can be traded in for something awesome. And it doesn't have to be like a pony. It could be like, you know, a basket of those little mini um, pots of Play-Doh. And they get to choose one every morning when they have 
can trade their tickets in. Um, but it's really talking to them about, you know, boundaries and limit testing and saying, okay, so what is your plan? What are we going to do if you wake up and you can't fall back asleep? What can you do? Well, can you sing a song? Yes, you can do that. Can you cuddle with your stuffies? Yes, you can. Can you, um, you know, count your toes? Yes. You know, can you climb into mom and dad's bed? No. No, that's not so great. So that, you know, that that would be the very direct approach. And that really honestly works great, especially when we make a big celebration out of them doing it. Like when you slept in your, you stayed in your bed all night, you obeyed the rules. Awesome job, buddy. Woo. Like pancakes. We're rocking it. Um, you know, personally, I like that because, again, studies show that kids who are up and about in the middle of the night actually get less sleep overall. Uh, a compromise would be like a mattress on the floor. That they can come in if they want to and sleep on a mattress on the floor next to the parents in the parents' bedroom. Um, But again, that's a child who's now fully rousing themselves and wandering around in the middle of the night, which isn't a great sleep hygiene. But that's a compromise that's livable if that worked better for you. We got a note from Anna who says, I'm so glad you're talking about this. Our son is four weeks old and is only supposed to sleep in his crib. But every time we put him down in it, he fusses and cries. He'll sleep in a rock and play, which is a swing for those Mm -hmm. of you who are are not in this stage, like a champ. But we aren't supposed to leave him unattended in those. So my husband and I have basically been taking shifts, staying up all night with him while he sleeps in one of them. We keep trying him in the crib once he's nice and sleepy and we'll let him cry for about a minute per our pediatrician's recommendation. Then pick him up, soothe, and try again. Sometimes we can get him to snooze, usually fitfully, up to an hour in the crib, but that's been it. My husband goes back to work next week, and I don't know what to do. We want him to sleep safely, but this is not sustainable. I completely respect following what the pediatricians say to do, and I want him to be safe, but it doesn't really seem to take reality into account very well. And this is an area, again, back to the issue of not, there's not a a lot of research in, in kind of practical baby sleep issues, non-medical baby sleep issues. So the American Academy of Pediatrics, based on a, a substantial amount of research, basically suggests uh, for infants to sleep on only in the crib, only in their backs, um, and ideally unswaddled by two months, and also that the crib should be in the parents' room for at least six, if not 12 months. Yeah, up to a year now. Yeah, yeah, and that's true, and that's a whole other conversation because other studies suggest that when your child sleeps in your room, neither you nor they sleep well. <laughs> so, so it really does put parents in a bind. And one of the gaping holes in research has been um, really investigating the safety of modern swings and rock and plays, which are, by the way, used by millions of people worldwide. This is not like some rare thing that five people used one time. These are used constantly. Are they safe? Do they really lead to SIDS? Um, what, what, what's really the situation there? And it's a big gaping void of research. So, you know, I, I understand why the AAP doesn't recommend them because there's no evidence to support that it's okay. There's also no evidence to support that it's not because there is no evidence. So, um, but back to your issue. Um, so the kid sleeps great in a rock and play, sleeps terrible in the crib. I don't know if the rock and play is motorized. Some are motorized swinging. Some are just kind of like uh, snuggly places. Um, I don't know if you're using a pacifier, swaddle, and white noise. That would be my first go-to. At this age, I don't care if they fall asleep in the crib. So if you rock uh, them in your arms with the pacifier and the white noise and then sneak them in there, that would be a great compromise. Um, I think this is a great example, though, of where the safe sleep recommendations don't give anybody any options because the answer is, well, then they just are up all night. And what I know anecdotally is when people are in this position, things get really bad and bad even 
very unsafe sleep situations uh, occur, whether that was my driving around at two in the morning, which was insane, by the way. I should never have been doing that. Or people falling asleep uh, with infants on their laps on couches, which is an enormously unsafe situation. So we have to give people options. You know, uh, is the rock and play okay? I think that's a conversation to have with your pediatrician. Um, I think giving your child more than a minute to complain about the crib is something I would also really encourage you to experiment with. And I know this is going to sound harsh, but what if you set a timer for 20 minutes and you walk out the door? What happens? And you're in the hallway, you just set a timer, and we just wait and see. Because often, especially at that age, I know it's hard to believe, but kids will scream like banshees for like 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 minutes, and then, boom, silence. So sometimes part of the issue is giving them more than a minute to figure it out. Even at four weeks. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not talking about like, you know, hours and hours. I'm saying like, you know, put them down in the crib, do a great, give them all the soothing you can, and then go take a long shower. What happens? if you have a partner or if you have uh, parents or in-laws that are helping you, you have to sort of all get on board together, don't you? Because, I mean, this is one of the hard parts is if one um, caregiver is saying – look, we're going to give it 10 minutes, and the other caregiver is saying, I cannot listen to this yeah. baby cry. I'm going in. Yeah, no. And that comes up a lot. And um, it, But in this case, I would say clearly what you're doing isn't working. Like, what is your exit plan? You know, he's going to go back to work. You're all up, I guess, in some scheduled way all night, staring at this child taking their vitals periodically. I don't know <laughs> what exactly is happening. But I think, you know, obviously we cannot continue this. So if this, what I'm suggesting was untenable, I would say, okay, great. What's your plan? (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to Polly, who's calling in from Saco, Maine. Hi, Polly. Go ahead. Whoa, I dropped my phone. (laughs) (laughs) That happens. It's a hazard. I'm I'm just calling because I'm the grandmother of a five and three-year-old. And my daughter did sleep training with both of them. I believe, with your book, um, the firstborn, little Henry, was very difficult early, you know, early on. And then she got a hold of the sleep training book, and she followed every detail. Um, she was she was really actually kind of difficult to be with because she was saying, no, that's not what the book says. <laughs> but... Those two children are the best sleepers I've ever known. They go to bed at 7, they get up at 7, they sleep all night, and they've done it since they weighed 10 pounds. It's incredible. Uh, Polly, I'm I'm so glad it worked. Thank you so much for calling in and sharing that success story, and congratulations to your daughter and to your grandkids on being good sleepers. Let's hear from Marissa in Thetford. Hi, Marissa. Go ahead. Hi. Um... It's a really topical, timely show. I have an 18-month-old who was great at sleeping through the night and great at going down for naps. Um, And for the last three weeks, going on four weeks, we've had probably some teething, definitely a cold, general um, inability and lack of interest in napping. And I try to put him down in the way that we've always done for his nap. Um, and it takes him about a half hour of crying, crying, crying to fall asleep, and then he falls asleep for about a half hour and is awake. Um, and it's carried over into the night just a few times, but it's really, um, it's really during nap time that we're struggling, and he needs, he needs that sleep. Um, and I feel like it's coming from an attachment to me, like he's wanting to be with me and all of a sudden has quite a bit of separation anxiety. Um, so I was so glad to hear that this was the topic of today's show. 
Marissa, thanks. Alexis, do you have any advice for Marissa? So I try to provide, you know, action plans where they exist and commiseration where there isn't one. So 18 months is a common time to have that exact behavior. Um, You know, I call it fear of missing out. But yeah, I mean, no kid wants to go to sleep. And the sleep drive at nap time is fairly dinky. And naps are absolutely fightable. And he's fighting it. So... You know, and he's a toddler now and not a a little baby, so he can and will fight naps. I mean, you can't force kids to eat, sleep, or poop. If he doesn't want to, he won't. And then you get into this cycle where, you know, you're doing your wonderful consistent routine and he's like complaining at you for half an hour and then takes like a tiny nap, just enough to take the edge off, and then is probably like a huge pill all day. And then, you know, that can feed into night issues where now he's overtired going into bedtime and then you have elevated cortisol and you don't sleep as well. And uh, it's it's a whole pot of bad time. And truthfully, she's doing the right thing. You know, you just stick the course. Um, I assume this kid is only taking one nap a day. Some 18 months are on two naps a day. If so, it's probably time to move to one nap. But if you're on one nap and he wants to, you know, complain about it, that's his choice. You can't make him sleep. All you can do is is be consistent and give him a safe, quiet, boring place to hang out. And what he does with that time is his choice. You mentioned earlier that you've worked now with thousands of parents. And, you know, a million or more people come to your website every year looking for help. <clears throat> Four million. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Four, okay. So, 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 or more meaning many more. So, but so what do you actually do? When you say you've worked with thousands of parents, what, what do you do to work with them beyond sort of take these snippets like we're hearing today or, or people on the Facebook page who are like, help? It's a, yeah, no, uh, it's a strange little career that uh, has uh, happened again accidentally. Um, I People hire me to – and we Skype. I Skype with people all over the world and we talk through their challenges and usually it takes about an hour and a half and we talk about what they've done, what their schedule is, what's happened – Uh, how they're feeling about it, what their goals are. And we come up with a plan and we go, okay, this is what we need to do. Um, Often there's two kids. There might be a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. This is what's working. This is what's not working. This is why what you've tried in the past hasn't had the outcomes you'd hoped for. This is why you're stuck. Let's make these changes and let's check in in a week and see what has developed. And, you know, is it did, did my plan get us where we should have gone? Did, uh, you know, is something unexpected happening? Let's see where we're at. And um, and I get it, by the way, because people are really, really tired. And so I've written like a 320-page book, and I'm like, the answer's in there. And right. they're like, nope. So um, <laughs> so do they just need you to be the, the one who pushes them? I mean, it, it is in the book, and it's for free on the website. I mean, you don't even need to buy the book. Well, you know, so initially I thought the book was going to be like the blog in book form. And uh, the blo- the book is 90% not the blog. And that's why it took three and a half years. I blew every possible deadline that I set for myself. And uh, – uh, but yeah, so the so I think the issue is that, you know, the basic idea that your child needs to fall asleep without you is on the book. But the intricacies of how that has to happen and if we're approaching it with the right – schedule and how do we handle all of these nuanced issues that come up uh, is tricky and very individual. I mean, there's a wide range of babies and how they sleep and when they need to go to bed. 
So, yeah, it just people need uh, a little bit of bullying sometimes, but often it's just let's work through the nitty gritty so that we're rock solid. We did get a note from Sean who says, this is possibly the most wasteful Vermont edition in a long time. Oh, Care thanks. to refute that, Alexis? Thanks, why, Jane. <laughs> why is this important to to people who don't have babies? I mean, you know. Well, it's not important to people who don't have babies because it's not your problem. But it is a massive problem for the billions of people worldwide who are having babies. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show, offering some advice. And, um, you know, it, it's really interesting to hear, given that 4 million people are, are coming to your website every year, because clearly people need a little help with this. So thank you, Alexis. Thank you. Alexis Dubieff's new book is called Precious Little Sleep, The Complete Baby Sleep Guide for Modern Parents. We have a link to her website, which also has resources at vpr.net.